Tim, thank you. It's good worship. That took me back a little bit. That was that worship reminded me of them, them, them old light switch retreat days. It's a good light switch worship that I remember. Love those songs. Tim brought us back. Back to the future. Off to George McFly. Excited to be in front of the camera this morning while you're at home preaching. Excited to have wiped off my car and driven in the slushy streets so that the word of God could be preached while you eat eggs and bacon at home. Suffering for the kingdom is what we do. You, not so much. All right, so we're going to keep going. We are in Romans. We're hitting one chapter a week, just an overall review of the chapter. So there, obviously, by doing that, there are going to be things that we just can't get into. I taught each of these chapters usually require multiple sermons, at least when we went through these. Historically, there was a couple sermons. I think Romans 5, then four sermons of Romans 5. So as we've been doing the last four weeks, we're taking the chapter, looking at it from about 15,000 feet. Some things will We'll dive in. Some things we're not going to hit all of it together. I would encourage you. I mean, you may have questions after the service that I may answer. But if I miss something, I just would encourage you to go back and, and check on it from the actual sermon that's on the website. I think our Romans, I think we have a link for Romans. Is that right, Phil? Yeah, so there's a Romans link when you go to the sermons that will give you all of the sermons there. And you can go back and check out how we handled those particular verses back then. So today it's just going to be, again... We're going to get into it, but we're going to hit it at a higher, higher level because we don't want to, we can't dive. I can't do four sermons in one, but essentially that's what I'm going to try to do, do four sermons in one. So don't try this at home. All right, let's, let's, let's remind ourselves of where we're at because we're hitting so much information. It's easy to kind of get lost in all of the theology and the, and what I'm saying and the connections that I'm trying to make and we forget What's actually, what's actually going on here? So we're in Romans 5 today, but let's remember what's actually going on. And I said actually going on like three times now. So I want you to know what's actually going on. All right, so here's what's happening. Here's what's actually going on. The Paul in, in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, when we did that a few weeks ago, I mentioned that that is his life verse. That's the verse of the whole Bible. For I am not ashamed of the glory of God, right? I'm not ashamed of the glory of God, for it is the power of God to save. And he talks about the, the righteous will live by faith. So this idea, Paul is from that moment on flushing out what that means. What does that mean that he's not ashamed of the gospel, that the righteous will live by faith? His connection, he's making sure that this church understands that the only way they can be right with God is having faith in Jesus Christ. And so to do that, he has to strip away and reveal some of the sinful aspects of who everyone is in this church so they can realize, hey, by my character alone or by any kind of what I previously thought made me right before God has all been taken away. So each chapter, he is going after what people think 
makes them right before God. But he spends a considerable amount of time talking to Jews, those who were given the law, those who were circumcised. And one of the reasons why I believe he's doing that is because Jewish people would have a much more difficult time believing in Jesus and seeing Jesus now as what makes them right before God. The Gentiles who had no concept of God will just kind of accept it for what it is. They don't have to work through as many of the same issues. Of course, they have their own ideologies and their own worship of gods. And, you know, Paul had a vision when he went to Corinth and he was afraid because he saw how much idolatry and worship was there. I remember that being in India. And I remember this scene where I've said this before, we were, where I thought we were going to be martyred. And in front of us, as these people are yelling at us behind them, is this huge statue of some of a God that some of them worship called, I think it's Chemosh or whatever. And it was like a, like a 60 foot monkey sitting down on this statue. It was a statue sitting down. I was like, wow, this thing was, I just hadn't seen that. It was massive. And it was a little bit intimidating. So I can imagine Paul feeling like this in Corinth. And so God says, listen, I have people in this city. So Paul is, is, is systematically breaking down people who believe in other things besides Jesus for their standing before God. But the Jews in particular have a different challenge than the Gentiles because the Gentiles may have had other gods, but they hear this story and it may be easier to connect with that. But the Jews actually have believed for thousands of years that they're the people of God already. And so now here comes this guy, Jesus, he comes and dies and people are still thinking, well, you still got to be circumcised and you still got to obey the law of Moses. And the argument that Paul is making is, no, you don't. You have to believe in Jesus and Jesus alone. So he spent much of chapter two, much of chapter three, a lot of chapter four, and then he comes to chapter five. And he's making the case specifically for those who were of Jewish descent that, listen, your standing before God has changed. It's not it's no longer because you were given the law. It's no longer because you were circumcised. That covenant that God made is over. There's a new covenant, and it's in Jesus Christ. And so this is the argument that Paul's making. So he spends a lot of Romans 4 talking about Abraham and how was Abraham justified before God, which justified means how does Abraham stand before God and not guilty? How are you and I who sin consistently? who are not, some of y'all not even watching this sermon, you're watching it while you're vacuuming right now. You are sinning against the grace of God right now. I'm playing, but it could be. Could be. Sit down and listen to the message, then clean up your house. But how are we righteous before God? All of us are aware of our sinfulness, all of us. As a matter of fact, most of the encouragement that you get is to remember your identity in Christ. Why? Because you're more aware of how much you're not like him. Well, how do we stand before God and be declared not guilty when we know we're guilty? We couldn't even defend ourselves. I couldn't even be my own lawyer. How do we do that? Well, Paul is making the argument it's because of faith in Jesus Christ. And so he looks at Abraham. He looks at Moses. He talks about David. And now he goes in this chapter, he's going to pull us into Adam. He takes it all the way back to the beginning of humanity to Adam and to show that justification by God is in Jesus because he makes a startling claim about Adam and who people are that don't have faith in Jesus Christ. But before he does that, 
he begins by helping us see the reality or whether the benefits of being declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. And he begins right here in Romans 5, verse 1. And I quote, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained faith through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character and proven character produces hope. Verse five, this hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. A lot to unpack here. We're going to unpack a little bit of it because we're not going to dive into all of it. But we're going, to, we're, going to, we're going to get a little closer than we have been. All right, so this passage starts out with therefore. Remember the therefore rule, right? Therefore rule is always whatever I was saying before is, is in light of what I'm about to say. So therefore means because, I just, because of what I just said, this is true, all right? So let's just real quick for a second, let's go back a few verses and remember what he just said so that we can remember what he's talking about and see the benefits of believing in Jesus. He says this in, in, in Romans 4, beginning in verse 19. We'll just read these last six verses. And he says this, talking about Abraham. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead, since he was about 100 years old, and also the deadness of Sarah's womb. We talked about this last week. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to do. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, it was credited to him was not written for Abraham alone. So this is where he's bringing us into it, right? So he reminds us of Abraham. Now he's pulling us in. Verse 24, but also for us, it will be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. This is important. So you see right there, just that statement alone just shows you the, the significance of the resurrection account. See, we don't just believe that Jesus died for our sins. We believe in two kinds of deaths. One that he died and then he defeated death. So he rose from the dead. So he says, it will be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised up for our justification. We talked about this delivered up and raised up language and even the resurrection, even in he's so much the resurrection that even the way he died is described in resurrection terms, being lifted up, coming out of, raised up. So let's look at this now. What does this mean? So here are the benefits. There are three standout truths in these verses and there's one responsibility. Three truths that stand out in these verses that he's saying and then there's one responsibility. So there's three things to believe and then one thing to do. All right. Here's the first standout. Here's the first truth that he wants us to know is that we have peace with God. Verse one, therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the first truth. That's an incredible reality. Now, here's what he's saying. This statement about having peace with God. is not he's not talking about a sense of peace, right, that we have, like this, 
Like you, you've heard this peace that surpasses all understanding that people, the diverse scripture talks about. And everyone's looking for this peace that surpasses all understanding. Should I buy this home? I had a sense of peace about it. I don't know about that. I know people that have committed serious sin and had a sense of peace about it too. That's not what he's talking about here. The peace with God that he's talking about is not a, a, is not a subjective sense that we feel like we have peace with God. He's not saying we have peace with God because we feel it. He's saying we have peace with God because he allows it. There's a difference. This isn't about how I feel. But be honest, most of us don't feel like we have peace. Most of us don't even feel like we believe in God. Most of us don't know what that feels like. Unless you just had a great quiet time with the Lord. This peace is describing an eternal peace with God, not necessarily an earthly one. Now, it's not that we don't experience some peace in this earthly time, but this isn't primarily talking about the experience of living in this world. It's talking about a disposition of the heart from God towards us because he has peace with us because we have faith in Jesus. This is God's disposition towards us. Now think of the contrast. He has peace with us and we're always at war with each other. I mean, if we were to just survey, we know this already, let's survey the culture. Let's survey the church. We talked about this a lot of last year. Look at all of the war going on over justice, and race, and politics, and all this stuff. I mean, friendships lost, people leaving churches, pastors burnt out, just division, divisiveness. I, I read an article on NPR that said this. It said 50 years ago, or 60 years ago in the 60s, it said that if you, when they did a poll of people who, what was their greatest concern? And they said then, the greatest concern was that their, their, their children, their loved ones would marry outside of their race. That was in the 60s. They did a poll last year, and they said their greatest concern is that people will marry someone an opposite of a political party of them. Now, granted, I don't know if they're asking the same people. Right, that'd be something. But the point is this. That's a serious statement that my concern is that people would marry someone opposite of the political ideologies that we have. What's my conceptual framework for politics? Man, don't marry someone who's opposite of that. So if you're a Republican, don't marry a Democrat. If you're a Democrat, don't marry a Republican. And that's in the church. We're at war with each other. But God says, man, you're at peace with me. Or better, I'm at peace with you. So how is this possible? Well, if we stay in the opposite of, of peace is war. The opposite of, of peace is wrath. So if God has a disposition towards us, because as the scripture says, we have been declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ, then essentially God is at peace with us because he went to war with Jesus. On the cross, using the analogy, he goes to war with Jesus so he can be at peace with us. So when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? That's a war cry. That's a war cry from the Savior. 
But then when he says, it is finished, that's when our peace begins. The peace that God has towards us, his disposition towards us, Jesus finished it. Peace begins. This is an eternal peace with God. Not necessarily an earthly peace. Again, doesn't mean we don't experience peace now. It's not like we're always on edge and that there's a problem all the time. And if there is, it might be you. But there is a sense where God's disposition towards his people is that he's at peace with us. Now, this distinction between eternal peace and earthly peace is important, and it's going to make sense in about 10 minutes. Why that distinction is important. The next truth that he says after peace with God, the next truth that we get is that it says we have access to God. Look at verse 2. We also have obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. So we have access to God. And access to the grace is to God himself. God is grace. So the access that the scripture is saying we have is to God himself who has a disposition of peace towards us because of faith that he gave us in Jesus Christ. This is why grace is amazing, because it's not a grace that we could muster up and earn ourselves, which is the whole point of Romans 4. Because if we could earn it, then it's no longer a gift, it's payment. This access to grace is access to God himself. So there are three ways we can view this. One, visually, right? Visually. So visually, we see this happen in Mark chapter 15. I don't know if I gave you these verses, but you guys, are, you guys can real quick, one time in your life in the past year, use your own Bible. Mark 15, at the end of Mark 15, in verse 36, it says, or verse 37, it says this, Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Verse 38, Mark 15. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, listen, like, think about this for a second. Jesus is on the cross, suffering the full wrath of God, at war with God for six hours on the cross so that God could be at peace with us for eternity when no time matters. And here, as soon as he breathed out his last, or if you follow the seven sayings of Jesus, when he says, it is finished, and he bows his head to give up his spirit, the curtain in the temple. Now, the temple was, there was a curtain in the temple that blocked off everyone except the high priest who could come in once a year and be in the presence of God. That's how significant it was. If you went in that temple, that, that behind that curtain, and you weren't the high priest, and it wasn't that one time a year where you could go, you were dead. That was it. It was a wrap. Christmas and gifts. It was a wrap. But as soon as Jesus dies, it says that curtain. We don't know who did it, if God had an angel do it, but if we were watching it, we'd all be afraid because somebody's tearing that curtain up. It'd be like the conjuring or something. Like, why did the chair move by itself? The curtain is torn in two, 
And that's God visually saying, there's no way from now on, everyone has access to me who believes in Jesus. I have peace with you. There's access. There's no more curtain blocking you. There's no more priest that needs to go to me on your behalf. You come to me. Why? Because I came for you. So visually, the curtain is torn in two. We can come to him because he came for us. Experientially, now, how do we have access experientially? Oh, man, when we pray. When we pray. Jesus said, look, when you pray, the Father already knows what you need before you ask. Paul said, pray without ceasing. In other words, be in a spirit of praying. Now, Paul wasn't talking about praying to the point where you just don't got no job. That's not what he's talking about. Dudes be taking the scriptures and applying it, all, justifying all wrong, being, not being a good steward and blaming it on God. Why'd you get fired? Because I was praying all the time. Oh, man, get out of here. That's not what he's talking about. But being in a spirit of prayer, you can pray quickly. Like, listen, the reason why, one of the reasons why I think Jesus said, I'm paraphrasing with Jesus, what Jesus said. You go back to Matthew 6 and tell me I'm wrong. Jesus said, look, when you pray, you don't, don't use a bunch of words like the Gentiles do. And sometimes I think we think that way. Real prayer is only like, man, if we pray for 40 minutes on an hour, we got to say all this stuff. And so we don't got time to pray. Oh, man, Jesus said, you don't got to say all that because God already knows what you need. So sometimes just pray, Lord, just give me grace today. That's prayer. Sometimes just say, Lord, remind me of truth. Lord, help me here. That's prayer. Lord, help somebody else. That's prayer. Lord, my back is itching. I can't scratch it. Can you do something? That's prayer. All of it is prayer. Whoever said we got to do all this stuff. In fact, if we want to be honest, Jesus laid it out like this is how you pray. <laughs> I mean, he was like, man, you pray the same prayer for a long time and be like, you ain't got to pray for much else. This covers all of it. This is important because in our minds, we don't think that prayer is access to God. We've forgotten that because we, we, we it's almost like we are, we are psychologically thinking that there's a curtain there. Listen, Jesus is sinless. If God didn't want you to have access to him because you still sin, then the curtain wouldn't have been torn to. If anyone thinks that God is not listening to their prayers as a believer because they still sin, you are being lied to by your conscience and by the enemy. The Lord is at peace with his people. That's how significant. So either we have a low view of what the cross really meant or we have a high view of our sinfulness. And they're both wrong. If I have a low view that the cross actually gains me access to God, that's a sinful perspective. If I have a high view that my sin disqualifies me from praying and God answering my prayer, hearing me, that's a sinful perspective. We have access to God when we pray and then when we read. When we read, one of the reasons why so much heresy came out in the days of first millennia after Jesus died was because people didn't have access to the scriptures. In fact, when, when one of the, I think, top five greatest moments in redemptive history was October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther put his 95 theses on the Catholic Church's door, it was around then when people just started to read. Started to, there was a lot of people who just couldn't read. 
You know why? Because when you read the word, there's power in it. Why you think the, the masses didn't want slaves reading? Because if slaves actually learn how to read, reading is power. There's information, there's wisdom that comes from that. If you can read this Bible, you're going to find out the way we're processing it and telling you to obey it is a little off. People couldn't read. People didn't have access to the word. But the word was made available. And now look at us. We got so many Bibles, we don't even know what to do with them. We're, we're sending Bibles to other nations that don't have them. From our experience, we've obtained access because we get to pray to God and we read to God. And lastly, so we've got visually the curtain torn in two. Experientially, we pray and we read. And eschatologically, which means in the end, the end times, we'll have access to his presence, actually being in the presence of God. Revelation 21 and 22. Oh, we can't wait for that day. Revelation 7 gives this, this vision of all tribes, nations, tongues, worshiping the throne, worshiping the Lamb. We have access with God. We're at peace with God. The third truth out of these five verses is in verse 3 and 5. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that our afflictions produces perseverance. Afflictions, that means we suffer. We suffer. And this is where what I said, that earthly and eternal peace, is this distinction is important. Because if we think peace with God is primarily earthly, then we won't know how to interpret difficult times. We won't know how to interpret when we're suffering. We won't know how to interpret persecution. And we'll panic like many people are because, oh, no, they're going to persecute us. These policies are going to persecute us as if no other Christians have experienced persecution, as if 2 Timothy 3.12 does not say, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. So if that's from politics, if it's from personal, if it's whatever, if it's financial, it's going to happen if you want to be godly. But people are afraid of it because in our minds, persecution is somehow an unwarranted thing from God. I think people think it's a measure of God's disfavor when persecution actually has a purpose. And so that's why this distinction is important. It's important. Why is it important? Well, because God said that it, it brings about endurance perseverance and patience so how does that happen well one we learn to wait on the Lord you know because we live in the culture we live in we live in it there are people who are watching this that don't have never weren't even alive before there was like internet like if you're which is 2021 if you're 21 years old 20, I mean, you've only known a technological world. There's a couple of us from the dinosaur age. We remember eight tracks. We remember, should we remember CD players? Remember that? I remember having a Sony Walkman CD joint, and we'd get mad when it skipped. Remember that? Taking the, taking the CD out all over it, as if my breath somehow fixed the scratches. Wiped it off, put that joint back in, and it worked a lot, too. Had that gangster breath. 
We just remember a time before that, but we, we, we live in a time where you just had to wait for some things. But now you don't have to wait for nothing. I mean, of course you do, but now I just, it's an app. I just go in, let me do this, let me do that. Let me tell you how real this is. You ever send a text to somebody and you see them three buttons and you just getting irritated because they ain't text you back yet? Like, hurry up, man. Say, you know, well, the culture that we live in does not give way to waiting and enduring and persevering. It's a, I want it now, right now. So the, in the perseverance, the affliction is that it's not fast enough. The affliction is that the Wi-Fi signals isn't strong enough. And that's the culture we live in. I'm not mocking, it's just who we are, but there is a waiting on the Lord that sometimes affliction does that. Why? Because no one else can take it from you. Your pastors can't. Your D group can't. There are some things only the Lord can do. And you wait on them. That's one of the reasons why. When it talks about endurance in verse 4, produces character, and proven character produces hope. Here are three clear ways, three clear ways character is proven. Three clear ways just from this. One, by resisting temptation. When we're afflicted and we have to fight against it, particularly if we're fighting against it because we're trying to honor the Lord, it's resisting temptation, it's proving character. And why is this good? Because once we know we can resist some sin, we start having confidence to resist more of it. If we feel like we can't resist anything, then we won't resist anything. But when we start realizing, like, you know what? Man, I was... So, I'm going to tell you, this video is going to come out, and I'm going to tell you this. So, when I was at this conference last Tuesday... There was a point at the conference where it was me, Tim Brindle was over here, Vody Bauckham was right here. Vody Bauckham is the heavyweight champ on the side of non-racial justice. I would say that. He came directly at me and challenged me. And a lot of people, they were my, some friends of mine that were audience were like, man, my stomach was in knots. Because they were like, whoa, he came directly at Kurt. And so Vody ain't going to back down. And they know me, I ain't going to back down. And so I'm sitting here looking at this dude, and he's looking at me like he's my dad with a serious face. I'm sitting here like, man, oh, man my last name ain't Bacham. I got a lot of thoughts running through my head. There's a lot running through my head. And he's coming at me strong, and people are like, man, if Kurt responds the wrong way, this thing is going to be over. And I'm thinking the same thing. I got all these thoughts in my head. I'm, you know, it's like the Matrix. No, 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 no. Try to figure, don't say that, don't say that, don't say that, don't say that. And you'll see it when it comes out, but I was able to keep my composure. I was able to keep my composure, and I ended up laughing about it and then having everybody else laugh at different things. And that was only because there are times where I practice resisting, giving in to temptation when people say things about me or to me, especially when I think they're wrong. We have to resist. And when we resist, everyone was like, Kurt, man, I thought you were going to go off, man. I was so, because I've been in other situations, even in this church where people have said things directly to me to challenge me. And I've had to learn, not that serious, chill out. 
They might be right. They might be right. Listen. And if they're wrong, okay, eat it. Push back when you need to. But it builds character. It builds character. Now they want me to do all these events. <laughs> now they talk about doing one of politics next. That's a different story. That resisting temptation is one. Just how character is proven. Two, continuing to trust the Lord in the midst of difficult circumstances. What do y'all think 2020 was? It was one big difficult circumstance for all of us. To varying degrees, to varying degrees, but all of us had a challenging 2020. To varying degrees. Obviously there were people who got married, Tim and Beth. There are people who got kids, who got get pregnant, Tim and Beth. <laughs> Everybody here is laughing with y'all. Maybe y'all are too. I just can't tell. I can't wait till y'all get back in church. I need that. 2020 was difficult circumstances for all of us to varying degrees. And yet, even if we are struggling to find our, our ground in the Lord, do you still believe? Do you still pray and read, even if it's difficult? Are you still watching the service? Are you still going to D group and going to one another? We had up to 90 people logged in for one another. And some of those people usually sit with more than multiple people. So we had a good number of people in the church that were there Wednesday night. Why were you there? Through difficult circumstances. Why? Because you still trust them. It doesn't mean you do it flawlessly. Man, I'm far from flawless. If you have a high, well, you don't, I don't think nobody in our church got a high view of us. They shouldn't. But if anyone does, man, come stay with me for the weekend. You'll be like, oh, okay, wow, okay, yeah. Betsy's a strong woman. I really respect her a lot. By continuing to trust the Lord in difficult situations, it produces character. That's what endurance does. Endurance says, I still believe, even though I don't understand. That's beautiful. When I still believe, even though I don't understand, that's God. Don't let the enemy fool you. That's God. When I still believe, even though I don't like this, even though I want something different, but I still believe, you're applying this verse. It's producing character in you. Thirdly, the way this produces character and hope is when we do fail to resist and we don't fall away. See, there's a difference between I failed and I've fallen away. It was very possible for me to get offended when this guy said that to me. Because what he said to me, to me, was offensive. And to other people that heard it, they were offended for me. If I would have said what I was thinking initially, I still would be right here today. Still would believe today. Listen, we all fail. Was it was that was that was that was that song, Mac? A righteous man falls down seven times, but gets up seven times. Everybody falls. But only the ones who don't have the character fall away. 
So it produces character in us. It helps us. No, listen, let me tell you something. You know how you know you believe God? This is how you know. Let me tell you something. This is how you know you believe God. When you go through something that you don't like, that you know he could change, and you still believe in him, even though he hasn't changed it. That's the one way you believe God. Because let's be honest, he does a lot of things different than how we want. And sometimes we blame others because we think, ah, no, no, listen. Listen, complaining to God is a song. Complaining about God is a sin. Complain to God. He can take it. When you don't, when you fall away, you fail to resist and you still trust him, you still say, I'm going to keep going. That means you believe what he said about you. Because to do that, you have to believe that God loves you, even though you don't feel it because you failed. Mm. So you got those are the three truths. The three truths are peace with God, verse one. Access to God, verse 2. Suffering for God, verses 3 through 5. So here's the one, the one action from us. So we've got three things to believe, one thing to do. Rejoice. He says rejoice. Crazy. Says it twice in this passage. Let's read it again, starting from verse 2. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. So you got rejoice twice. So the two characters, the two things that we rejoice in, this is the responsibility. So we got to believe three things. We have peace with God, access to God, and then we suffer for God. And then the one thing we do is rejoice. So first it says we rejoice in the hope of the glory. Beautiful phrase. So we rejoice in the hope that comes from the glory of God. That's an amazing piece. This is part of our responsibility. We rejoice. So when we look at the culture, when we look at our lives, when we look at everything and think, man, this isn't lining up how it should be. I'm going to rejoice in the glory of God because God's glory is the most important thing in the life of a believer. God's glory supersedes my story. We rejoice in the hope that comes from the glory of God. And the glory of God that we rejoice in and the hope that comes from it is that we have access and peace with God because of faith in Jesus Christ. We rejoice in that hope. Because if we don't have that hope, we don't have nothing. This world is too cruel of a place for us to be able to say, man, I want it. Oh, this is it. This is true cruel of a place. Even the, the land of the free and the home of the brave is too cruel of a place for this to be it. We cannot hope in what America can become. We hope in who Jesus says we are. It also said we have hope in our afflictions. <laughs> we rejoice in our afflictions. That's a different command. It could have just said persevere, and that would make sense, right? But it's telling us to rejoice, actually, in our afflictions. Look at that, verse 3. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that afflictions produces endurance. 
So we don't just endure affliction. He says we rejoice. That's different. Why? Because rejoicing in affliction requires faith. It requires faith. And you know why? Because we know that on some level, God is allowing us to be afflicted. So we're rejoicing in the fact that God is afflicting us or allowing it to take place. And that by itself requires faith. You know why? Because perseverance is what everyone has to do. Even the world knows whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Even the world says no pain, no gain. But you know what the world doesn't do? They don't rejoice in the Lord when they're afflicted. They usually blame them. How could God let this happen? You ain't been to church in years. What you mean, how could God let this happen? You ain't been to church. You, you, you stopped going to church. You wonder how did God let this happen? What in the world are you talking about? What God are you referring to? Mm-mm. The world doesn't rejoice in affliction. They ain't here laughing. Don't make me laugh. The world doesn't rejoice in affliction. It doesn't. It usually blames something or someone or God himself for being afflicted. But when you rejoice in affliction, you are saying, I have faith. It takes faith to rejoice in the one who is allowing you to be afflicted because you believe that by this affliction, he's making you a better person. And maybe not you, but he might be doing it for the people around you. Everyone has to endure affliction, but everyone doesn't have to honor the Lord when they're afflicted. So rejoicing in affliction sets us apart. And you know what else it does? It imitates the Lord. Listen to what Hebrews says. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it should come up on your screen. If it doesn't, blame Josh. <laughs> Therefore, since we have, since we have since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us, right? Easily ensnares us. That's God's perspective on us. He knows sin easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So for the joy before him, he went to war with God the Father so that he could be at peace with us, and then he sits at the right hand of God. So we rejoice in our affliction just the way Jesus rejoiced in the affliction of the cross, so we also show ourselves to be children of the Most High God. I would say one of the strengths of Paul's argument, one of, and Paul understood this. He understood this in 2 Corinthians 11, where he lays out all these ways. He, listen, the, the, in his day, there were these people who called themselves apostles. He referred, Paul, Paul sarcastically refers to them as super apostles, I think. I might be wrong. It might be a translation thing, or maybe I was dreaming and it sounds cool. But he refers to them as people who claim to be apostles, but they're not. And his justification for his apostleship is how much he suffers versus them. See, they thought there's no way this guy is an apostle of God. He suffers too much. And Paul says, hold on. 
the fact that I suffer and believe proves that I'm a son of God. You haven't suffered. You haven't even been tested yet. Why do you think the scripture says, look, don't make a new convert, an elder. Don't, don't, because he'll be puffed up. You know why? Because he ain't been tested yet. Let him go through some things. You know, when you first get saved, it's like, man, why, man, everything is, the Lord is doing all of it. Man, he answered all this prayer and all of it. And all of us have been Christians for a while. I'm like, mm-hmm, that's great. Praise God. We know the wall is coming. And within that first year or two, boom. Hey, man, I'm struggling with my faith. Why? Because things aren't going like I thought. You got to be tested. How are we tested often? Because we think this is what we should be doing and what God wants us to do. And then we think, why are the doors opening? Why is it taking so long? Why is it not happening? Because, do you know no is also an answer too, right? No is an actual answer from God as well. That's a different, that's a different sermon. Paul, one of his greatest arguments, he said, look, I suffer. I suffer and I believe. I endure, I persevere. He says this in 2 Timothy 4. This is what he says in 2 Timothy 4 to prove this point. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. This is verse 6. Verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. You know what that statement means? I was tested, and I still believe. When you fight the good fight, he called it a fight. He said, I, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith, which means I've suffered, I've been tested, I've been persecuted, and I kept the faith, and now I'm about to die, and the reward is coming. That's why we rejoice in affliction. Now, rejoice here is not, it's not some sadistic command that's telling us that we should love or want suffering. No, rejoice is a response to the one who took our suffering in the first place. It's almost like saying, listen, since you took our affliction of going to hell for eternity, we'll take the affliction of whatever you let come our way. This is why Paul says in Romans 8.18, which we'll get there in a couple weeks, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth being compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. Because God has to show that we believe in him by letting us suffer and by showing us that we can actually do it and obey him. Why do you think he let Abraham almost kill Isaac? And he said, Abraham, Abraham, stop. Now I know you believe. Of course God knew that Abraham believed. He told him 20 years ago that you're credited with righteousness. He already knew that Abraham believed. But you know what? He showed Abraham that Abraham believes because Abraham was willing to kill his son. Man, when we suffer. God is showing us that we actually believe because we still, we will do it and we'll persevere through it. And when we rejoice in it, he's showing us that we believe. God doesn't need, we don't need to prove nothing to him. He knows everything. God knew Abraham believed, but then when he saw that act, he showed Abraham, hey, you're willing to kill your own son. That's faith. Because it wasn't that you were willing to kill your own son. That wasn't the issue. For Abraham, it was, you knew that he was going to come back. Abraham believed in the resurrection before there was resurrection. Because Abraham told the dudes that was with him, me and the boy will be back. But the command was kill Isaac. So Abraham knew somehow, some way, me and Isaac coming back. He believed in the promise of God. When we suffer and rejoice in it, it means we believe in the promise of God. And God isn't letting up. We're not proving nothing to him. He's proving something to us. He's showing us that we believe. 
Oh, man, I'm, oh, man, I'm not going to get through this chapter, man. We're talking right now. Listen, I don't know anyone who likes their suffering. But what we should like is what God is doing or intended to do through it. That's why we rejoice. Me and Mike, as your pastors, at times when we hear about your suffering, we cry, we pray, we talk about you, we grieve, we struggle. But we also have hope, though. And we also rejoice in some things. Even if nothing else, it's a man they believe, though. When I heard about Jason Lydon, the first thought I had after, oh my gosh, was he's with the Lord now. That was my second thought. He's with the Lord now. Did I understand it or like it? No. Did I not think, man, I deserve to go before he didn't? Yeah. But I was like, he's with the Lord now. And that dude is not like, oh man, let me go back. That dude is up there with Barbara. You know what I'm saying, Cleveland? He's up there. It's real. He's up there with people that he's telling. They up there doing their thing. They're not worried about us. When you see Jesus, you're going to be like, oh, man, shoot. Y'all, we good. I'm good. I know going back for what? Ain't nothing I can do. Lord, I see me. Your arm is big. Are you good? We good. Let me know when they coming up. I'd love to greet them. We rejoice. And that proves to us, God lets us see that even when he allows us to be afflicted, and it's varying degrees of affliction, that we still trust him. All right, let's keep moving. All right, verses 6 through 11, here we go. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more than since we have now been declared righteous by his blood will we be saved through him from wrath? For it, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. Man, there's a lot in this passage. You see this identity. Paul's going, he's this identity alert. Paul's going after identity here. He's going after identity. We were still helpless. We were, past tense, while we were still helpless. While we were sinners. Talking about helpless, helpless is just being weak. We were completely incapable to do anything that would contribute to God accepting us. That's what it means by helpless. That means there is nothing that we could do to have peace with God. In verse 1 of chapter 5, we were helpless. We were weak. Now, I love that he says, at the right time. I love those phrases. He says, at the right time. He's not talking about our understanding of time. He's talking about his. At the right time that God decided. It was the right time for God, not us. I heard somebody say, God's never, he's always on time. We're just impatient. It says, Christ died for the ungodly. And what he does, which is amazing, what he does is he, he makes a contrast here. So God contrasts who would die for who, right? So here's the point that he's making in these verses. He's saying this. 
that people wouldn't even give their life up for a good person. Now, granted, there's exceptions to the rule. Of course, I would give my life for my children and my loved ones and stuff like that. But if I was just walking down the street and then somebody was going to kill somebody else and said, somebody else better give up their life, I'm killing this person. I, I'd be like, man, I hope what they believe was true. Because I don't, unless the Lord really inspired me to do it, I don't got me being like, take me. I'd be like, man, I'm trying to get this food home before it gets cold. Now, I wouldn't be that cold hearted. But I mean, I'm just saying the reality is it's not like I'm rushing to give my life for somebody, even if they're a good person. He's saying, look, people won't even give their lives up for a person that's good. Maybe a righteous person, somebody might. But for the most part, the impression is you're not going to give up your own life. Why? Because you care about it too much. You won't even give up your life for someone that's good, but God gave up his life for millions that are evil. That's the contrast. You wouldn't even give up your life for someone that's a good person, but God gave up his son's life for millions of evil people. And that's the contrast. You wouldn't even do it for someone good, but God did it for many who are evil. We just love ourselves too much to give our life up. It's got to be serious conditions to which I'd be like, all right, I'm, I'm going to die for this person. Again, maybe in rare moments in war, a soldier jumps on a grenade and takes his own life for his troops. But I bet you there's love for those people and all of that. Respect them or something. But Jesus says, look, I'm going to die for people that hate me. I'm going to die for people that are doing evil against me. The father, I'm going to give up my son and I'm going to brutally pour out my wrath on my son so that they can be sons and daughters. The natural man wouldn't die even for someone good, so God supernaturally dies for people who are evil. That's the distinction that he's making here. I'm going to conclude with this. Let's look back at verses 9 through 11. So he contrasts that some people wouldn't die for someone good, but that Christ died for someone evil, showing you the character of God himself. Let's read verses 9 through 11 again. How much more than since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were sinners, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. So there, here's a powerful consequence of faith in Christ. And this is what's really important here. This is a how much more than sort of perspective, right? He says that in the thing. So here's what he's saying this. If it's true, if this is true, that right now you are declared not guilty because of your faith in Jesus, if that's true right now, then how much more true is it that there will be no wrath? because of your sin. So if you're declared righteous right now, and that's a true statement, then how much more is it true that there will be no wrath that comes your way? No wrath for sin on your behalf, but you're saved from his wrath. See, those go together. It's not declared righteous, but you're going to experience God's wrath. 
It's no, because of your faith in Jesus, God sees you as not guilty. Because Jesus's perfect life is attributed to you. It's like a blanket that covers you. So when God sees you because of your faith in Jesus, he says, oh, he belongs, he's family, he's in. When you see you, you think, man, look at all these sins that I commit. I'm not good, I'm not worthy, I'm still struggling with bitterness, I'm still struggling with, with self-control, I'm still struggling with fits of rage, I'm still struggling with pornography, I'm still struggling with... When God sees you, he sees, oh, that's fam. That's family. If this is true, look at the logic. Christ dying for us guarantees no wrath. And that's what's challenging is because we don't think that way, right, from what I just said. But God, look at how he emphasizes it. He emphasizes the cross. If the cross applies to you, if that's true that you believe the cross, then how much more will the consequences of believing in the cross, which is saved from God's wrath, which is peace with God, which is relationship with God, which is dwelling in the kingdom of God, how much more of that is true? That's why this is important. Because when we believe in Jesus, we accept his suffering for us. But we also agree to suffer for him. And by that, we avoid suffering from him. You see, we believe in Jesus and we accept his suffering for us. We agree to suffer for him and that avoids suffering from him. His wrath. For our rejection. We suffer for him or from him. There's no other way around it. And by his grace, he's drawn us to suffer for him or suffer in him. We suffer with him, essentially, or he suffers with us. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? It is the Lord Jesus whom you are persecuting. Jesus intimately is with his people and suffers with us. So that's the logic of verses 6 through 11. And then he explains why we actually need that reconciliation in verse 12, and we'll pick up there next week. So let me pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, of the scriptures. Even if I said something wrong this morning, Lord, anyone can just go back and read the verses and see it for themselves. I thank you for this incredible opportunity, and I thank you for this. You guided me, giving me this responsibility. But the reality is you don't need me to communicate this truth. It's in your word. We can read Romans 5 without any influence of a pastor or a preacher and see that we have a relationship with you, that we have peace with you, that we have access to you, that we suffer because of you, and we rejoice in that suffering, that we wouldn't even die for someone good, but you died for people that are evil. Father, I pray that you would allow this truth to really sink in for us. Because in, 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 the, in the last year, we've just been mentally in different places. We've struggled with different things. And 
some of us are struggling with just, I remember when someone said, I'm losing my extrovert, I'm losing this, it's, it's tired of not feeling this, and it's tougher to, to press in, and how do I even apply messages because I'm only around my family, as if that's not the prime place of application. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to, to know your truth and to live that truth and help us to, to live in light of the identity that you've given us. Lord, when you allow us to rejoice in, in, in suffering and affliction, it's not that we're proving something to you because you already know what we're going to do. You already know who belongs to you. You're letting us see who we are in light of you. You're giving us confidence that when we pray and trust you, when we persevere, we're not proving anything to you. You're showing us that we can do this to give us confidence to continue in doing this. So may that be the case, Lord, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, I just want to say... I was a little concerned because I didn't see uh, any questions for a while. So, I'm and I could, I could, no, no, some, some, something come in now. But I just wanted to say, <laughs> say that, um, you know, sometimes when that happens, you know, I try to throw out a few questions myself because I think people are just, you know, getting ready or whatever. Um, but man, this was so good. I couldn't even come up with any questions because I was just worshiping as the, mm. as the word came forth. And like you said, it's Romans five. Do that to you, huh? It's, um, it's. Definitely there in the reading, but, you know, it's like uh, people can play an instrument if we use this analogy, but sometimes people hit that jazz. Not everybody can do that. Mm. So sometimes the way you hit the notes can make it sound right and make right. it feel good. So, my brother, I just want to thank you for that word. Um, but now we'll go ahead and get to the, to the questions. Um, <laughs> this person. Okay, hold on. That person's. I'll send you that on the individual because it's an um, encouragement. But uh, the first question that came in uh, was how do we define suffering? So right now this person says, I'm quoting, uh, I am, quote, suffering through a heartbreak and what to do with my singleness and where to put a lot, where to put my energy and not be lonely. I feel like it's not actually suffering. It's just a battle of trusting him. In reality, everything in my life is amazing. Is God, um, is God still using me, using this, excuse me, to challenge me to pursue him, or am I just struggling for nothing? Uh, where do I categorize this? Mm, very good question. Excellent question. Mm -hmm. So a couple things. The first is, let's talk about defining suffering, right? So suffering, if I were to choose, I could just choose two words to define suffering that the Bible uses. Hope deferred. Right? So there's a proverb that says, the hope deferred makes the heart sick. So it's basically desires that I want that I'm not, that I'm not, I don't have, which for you is to be married. That is a form of suffering. So it's essentially, suffering can be because of my own sin. It can be because of my own des my desires. It could be because of something external, like someone hits me from the back and now I have neck problems. There's a, a wide range, but it's, it's, circumstances that are discomforting for the believer can be a form of suffering. It's really just a general way to look at it. So when you talk about being single, there's obviously a desire to be married. And 
and and there's 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 a there's a sadness because in your desire, I imagine that you're praying about it, trusting God for it. You're probably resisting the temptation to get in an ungodly relationship to force, you know, a relationship. And a lot of people don't do that. Right. And let me let me just real quick before I go any further, Thank let you, me bro. just say for a second, I want to thank and honor all of the women in this church who are not married. Because in our culture, mm -hmm. we have idolized marriage. Mm. And in the church, even more so, has so idolized marriage that we've acted like 1 Corinthians 7 is not in the Bible. And we haven't really given people who aren't married a sense of purpose because it's almost like marriage is somehow the, the goal for everything. And I've seen women in this church, and men too, single pe people who are not married constantly stay the course and be like, you know what, I'm just not going, I'm not going to do it because Jesus is better than my desire to marry. Mm -hmm. And I think more than what I'm saying Amen. right now, Amen. the Lord is going to reward you for that. Mm -hmm. yeah. So let me just say, press on Amen. for those of you who are not there. Um, I think one thing that's not helpful that married couples do is they talk about how difficult marriage is and like, man, enjoy your singleness. That's not helpful because when you hungry, telling somebody the food they might eat ain't going to taste good anyway is not helpful. <laughs> so I don't even think that's the move right there. I think you said something, though, that I thought was key. My life is amazing. And God is using you in significant ways. So here's what I would do. From a biblical perspective, this is what I would do. Read 1 Corinthians 7 and let that encourage you and give you purpose, right? Then continue to trust God for that. And the thing I, and by that, this is what I mean. Most of us pray like this, God, I want this. And I think God over time and through circumstances peels our fingers back so that we pray like Jesus did in the garden, not my will, but your will be done. Now, using Jesus as the example, he prayed for the unprayable. Take this cup away. Sure, that's the reason why he came. So if God takes the cup away, that was something that God couldn't do. Jesus was asking for the absolutely can't do that. And he was like, no, but my, it's not my will. Your will be done. Continue to pray that God would bless you with the relationship. But say those words, but not my will, but your will be done. And Lord, let me continue to serve and use the time. I mean, Paul's whole point in 1 Corinthians 7, he said, look, people who get married, they're distracted. He said they're distracted by worldly things. They got to worry about their spouses and their children. Should they have children? And, and he's right. He's right. And he said, look, there, there's, there's a lot of trouble towards people. And there's right. There's conflict. There's, listen, that Genesis 3 conflict wasn't just between Adam and Eve. That joint was between all kinds of people. So again, but I think there's a sense where the Lord is wanting us to know, hey, there's purpose in being single. There's purpose in affliction then there's purpose in being single if you feel afflicted because of it. So I would say read that 1 Corinthians 7 and then continue to find ways to serve. And then I think it's important. The one thing that we're not created for is to not have relationships. Right? Mm -hmm. Jesus, Jesus is the only one who was by himself. Remember when he said foxes have holes and, and, and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his home. He said where two or three are gathered, there I'm with them. He sent out his disciples in Mark 6 by 2 to go preach the gospel. Jesus was always about community. You know why? Because apart from being a human being, that was the only time that he's ever been alone. 
And by that, I mean he was still with the father, but let's not try to, that's hard to understand. He was a human being, and in his humanity, he wasn't part of the, the God having those moments. So the, 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 the Jesus who's only known the love of God became single so that he could accomplish the greatest work ever done. So for those of you who are still single, let that purpose you to accomplish work that others are not able to do. That's all I got. All right, man. I, mean, I obviously have more, but we don't know if we got to keep the party going. Yeah, man. So the, the Q&A is now like a hotline, my brother. So here we go. Uh, yeah, here we go. Don't forget the Super Bowl, so they'll be playing with me. <laughs> man, that's not till six up, bro. I so, know. You know. <laughs> I need to prepare early. <laughs> that's right. No, I'm just playing, man. Any quick, let him go. You know, I'm here for our church. I'll stay here till tip for another 10 minutes if I need to. <laughs> That's all right, man. Let's just go ahead and pray now. <laughs> now, nah, let, him, let him go. So um, another, another question along the line of, of suffering, and uh, many, many of these questions uh, that, that have come in have to do with suffering, but mm-hmm. this one is, mm-hmm. with this understanding of suffering to come, how do we faithfully await it without being overcome by fear? This person humbly confesses that I'm so afraid. Yeah. I, I, listen, I understand you. Right. I'm going to be honest. Um, I think pressure is going to come from, like, the Equality Act that I think is going to put pressure on us, and we're going to feel it soon. And it's not something that I want. But there's a couple things that help me personally. So this might be helpful. One just off the passage we read alone, we have to believe that suffering has purpose. So if I know that there's a purpose to this suffering, which God has laid out in his word significantly, which it produces character and hope, I have to believe that as a promise. What you're, what you're probably afraid of, what many of us are, is the type of suffering and the emotional physical, financial impact it's going to have on us that's going to make our life challenging. And that's one way to look at it, and that's how most non-Christians should look at it. But as a believer, we have to renew our minds and remind ourselves. We have to take our thoughts captive. That's 2 Corinthians 10, right? 3 through 5. We take our thoughts captive, and we have to believe that, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. He didn't say might be. He said will be. Like, Jesus is guaranteeing in, in, in the church in the West, we're so used to not suffering that persecution as a Christian is actually a new phenomenon in, in America. It just doesn't happen. So as suffering is approaching, and the, here's the good news. I think we know it's coming so we can prepare ourselves now. You know, the reason why soldiers learn how to shoot, clean their weapon and all that before they're in war, because you don't want to be worried about what's wrong with your gun in the midst of a shootout. Right? You want to be prepared. A good soldier needs to be prepared. If we know that suffering is coming, we need to get ourselves, remember, memorize and remember the words that give suffering purpose. And remember that when, our, when we're suffering, we're persecuted, we're being, we're being made to be like Jesus. So again, that doesn't take away all the fear, but Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, he said, listen, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot destroy the soul but fear him that can destroy both body and soul in hell. So there's this idea that God is saying, listen, don't worry about them. Yeah, they can cause you some physical harm, 
But that's nothing compared to what God, I'm the one in charge of all types of harm. And so I think we have to remind ourselves that our suffering has purpose. In Jesus, our suffering has purpose. It's shaping us to be like him. If we're not Christian, then our suffering has purpose. It's preparing us for further suffering because we rejected him. All right. Thank you. Um, this is maybe a kind of elaboration on that, but um, what does it look like to rejoice in suffering without ignoring the reality of pain that is here? So they, they, they also say, just because I feel there's, feel there's pressure to just always be happy and have a front as just being a generally happy person. So that's a little bit more to elaborate on like their state of mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so let's use a biblical example, right? Let's just use like uh, Psalm 73. All right, mm. this Psalm, the mm. first maybe 14 verses of this Psalm, 15 verses, is the, the psalmist basically offended, looking at the world and saying, look, these people have this, said their bodies are sleek and fit. They have no cares in the world. They got money. They're basically what we call today the beautiful people. They're the celebrities of the world. Look like they have it all together. And it looks like he's really offended. But then he recognizes something about them and about him. And he recognizes that being connected to God and that reality is a greater world, a greater reality than the one he's angry at, that he's jealous of. And then you look at like Hebrews 11, right? It said these mm -hmm. people were sawn in two. Mm -hmm. They were in sackcloth and ashes. They were beaten. And they said God was not ashamed to be called their God because they were looking for a greater reward. Rejoicing is not in any way pretending like we're not struggling because that's the Psalms are clear that God is okay with our struggling and our suffering. I mean, Jesus wept when he saw the grief that people had at Lazarus's death. So it's not saying, hey, hey, you're going through a lot, but you know what, though? God is good all the time. That's not what he's talking about. It's rejoicing is an expression that believes that even though I'm suffering, God is still good. And so when I rejoice, it's not like, hey, I ain't really going through nothing. It means, you know what? God is still good even though I'm going through something. So remember Daniel chapter 3, right? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. I use, I've been calling them by their real names. Like Meshach, never mind. So they're standing in front of the fiery furnace. And they say to Nebuchadnezzar, when he says, if you don't bow down when the music plays, you go into the furnace. And they said, Nebuchadnezzar, this was the most gangster thing I think ever. The two most gangster lines of scripture was this scene and when Jesus told Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it were given you from above. Mic drop. Gangster. When they told Nebuchadnezzar, they said, we have nothing to say to you. <laughs> Man, they, they from my old hood. Listen, we have nothing. They from Bellhaven. They from, we have nothing to say to you. They said, man, we know our God can save us. Our God will save us. But if he doesn't, we still ain't rejecting him for you. <laughs> what you going to do? They throw him in the furnace and Jesus and them in there grilling. They were supposed to be burnt and came back with chicken. So look, the, the, 
the, the point that I'm making is that rejoicing, what the Bible is calling for, is not a happy because I'm suffering. Mm -hmm. It's a happy because the God is the God of my suffering. And I'm still going to glorify him because I know, again, we have to train our minds to recognize that our suffering has purpose. Mm -hmm. Like because it feels so difficult, it's hard to remember that God is allowing this to do the very things he said in his word, produce character. So our suffering has purpose and we rejoice not because like, hey, because I'm suffering. Nah, we rejoice because we're rejoicing in the God who allows this suffering for a purpose. And we know he's not doing it because he doesn't love us or is mad at us or this, that, and the third. That's just not the way God works. He, doesn't, he's, he, he, was, he already did all of that kind of to Jesus for us. So he doesn't do that to us. So it's, again, it's, it's really not happy because I'm suffering. It's more like, you know, that's kind of sadistic. You know, it's like, no, I'm rejoicing because the God who is allowing this suffering, I, I trust he's good. So I'm rejoicing in the character of God more than what God is capable of doing, which would be ending my suffering. And that's what they did in, in Daniel 3. They killed it. It was like, man, we, we ain't worried about you, Nebuchadnezzar. Thank you. <clears throat> um, this person asks this question uh, because they are aware excuse my voice, they are aware that um, being comfortable is not God's aim for us, um, but they also don't want to despise his blessings and grace. So they ask, um, can you advise how to discern when to press into suffering that produces character and faith and when to recognize God's means of provision for relief, um, uh, for relief from anxiety um, and uh, focus on the needs that we might have. Okay, so if I'm understanding the question, I don't think those two are mutually exclusive. Okay, so when God is blessing us and we, listen, Paul, here's what Paul said, right? Paul said, I know how to be content with little or content with a lot. The point wasn't whether I have a little or a lot. The point was I'm content, like I'm either way. This is what Job told his wife in Job 3 when she said, you still trust God, man, curse God and die. He took everything. And what did he say? No. Do we not accept evil from the Lord, only good? That's just, that's, that's just not how we get down. So, like, they're not mutually exclusive. It's like when God is blessing and providing for us, we're grateful for that. Like, like, like every time we, when we say grace in my family and all that, we thank God for providing that food. I thank God that he's allowed members of this church to have jobs and who have a conviction to generously give because this is where my salary comes from. Right. Right. Amen. So if you don't work, I don't eat. You know what I'm saying? Like it's kind of like, it's one of them type things. Right. I'm grateful for that. Right. But when suffering comes, when challenges come, I'm aware that God is doing something as well. So I think it's not, they're not mutually exclusive. Praise God for when it's suffering and, and thank him for that provision. We should do that, right? But then when challenges come, and again, I don't know what, you know, suffering is, is, it can be as wide as my back hurts to I lost my job. I mean, there's, there's so much rain. When discomfort comes, when discomfort comes, whether it's through relationship or whatever, that's suffering. When that comes, then you just know, okay, God, that, that's, not, that's not you. That doesn't take away from the good that God has been giving and providing for me. Oftentimes, suffering is not, okay, no more provision. It's you have the provision. Most of us have 
clothes and food and all that stuff. Yeah. But the suffering comes in other ways. Maybe you, maybe you live in a home and you don't have a good relationship with your mom or your dad or something. You know, there's suffering there, even though your needs are provided for. So they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. I think we, we say, okay, God, I'm struggling with this. I'm praying. I'm asking you. But I'm going to, I think a lot of it is just like, Lord, I'm asking you for help, but I'm going to, it's John 6, right? When Jesus said, you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And they said, all these disciples walked away. And then Jesus walked over to the 12 and were like, well, what are y'all going to do? Y'all going to leave too? And then Peter said, where are we going to go? For you have the keys to eternal life. That's how we balance it. It's like, where else are we going to go? So even if I'm suffering or there's some discomfort, I'm going to still trust you, Lord, because ultimately when it's all said and done, I want to be with you. Even if it means I suffer here now. But when the things are going well, praise God for that. I don't feel bad about that at all. I don't, I mean, I, I, I may, you know, I may want to help if I can or something like that, but I'm not walking around like, oh man, some people lost their jobs and I'm still doing this or some people. That's just not, I don't compare what God's doing in other people. I'm not comparing his sovereignty somewhere else into his sovereignty with me. This is the way God's dealing with me and that's what I got to, that's what I'm accountable for, so. Yes, Cleveland, Cleveland is just saying that, that when people, like asking questions about suffering is, is somewhat different. He says you got to go through it. And when God brings you through it, then you realize you can handle other things. That's essentially what Cleveland is saying. Right. Yeah, we don't, with no mic. Yeah, we don't get the grace that we, <laughs> we don't get the grace for a situation without being in a situation. Yeah. In other words, what yeah. Cleveland is saying is, look, you don't get to choose your cross, but you do get to choose if you carry it. Right. That's what he's saying. And so when that cross comes, when that suffering comes, we carry it. We take up our cross like Mark 8, what Jesus said, and we still follow. Yeah, oh yeah. Oh, yeah I remember that well. Right, yeah, y'all did say that. Yeah, you do. It does. Nah, when you, and that's the, point, that's the point of the passage, right? That's just, you're just practically laying out how the pastors work. You know, endurance, you know, affliction builds character. Because like, you got to do a lot. You got to trust the Lord. And you got to be prepared. He's talking about when I had that situation with our house two summers ago. And we thought we was getting ready to get kicked out for something that we didn't do. And we had to accept it. Like, okay, then this is not our desire. But if that's what the Lord's going to do, that's what he's going to do. And we had to deal with the emotion of it and all the challenge of it. But, but that's how you learn to, to get through it. And it helps you. You know, suffering helps you put confidence in the right things. Right. It just helps you put confidence in the right. It's just in the Lord. Like, I, I can't put confidence in these people's mercy towards us or none of that. I can't put confidence in that. I got to put confidence in God. I was ready to go to court because I had my documents. I was ready. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm on all that smoke. But I mean, at the same time, it was like, okay, this is challenging. This is going to uproot us, but we got to deal with it. And we got to let the Lord work through, you know, how he's going to work through it. And that's what it does. It produces character. Also, and that's, that's, what we, that's the, the big picture point that he's getting at in Romans 5 is we have to remind ourselves, and it's hard because no one likes suffering. No one likes it. And I, and I would venture to say 
Jesus in the garden is proof that it wasn't like he was like, hey, I can't wait to die on the cross for y'all. Like he was in the garden, right. told Peter and them, hey, listen, man, I'm, I'm struggling right now. Look, I've heard theologians try to beauty that up, man. Nah, fam. Jesus was struggling. He said, my soul is sorrowful to, like, to the point of death. Like he felt the sting of death so personal that when an angel came to encourage him, he cried out even more and drops of blood came down. So I don't know what that angel was doing, but uh, Jesus was like, man, you can miss me, whatever what you say. I mean, I don't know what that angel said, but Jesus, it said he prayed even harder the Lord take the cup away. Jesus didn't act like, he, like suffering was nothing even to him. So I don't think we should ever think, but it, but it built character. And Jesus knew that by demonstrating that, I think that was, in, that was intentional. God wanted, Jesus said, I always do what pleases the Father, right? So the Father wanted Jesus to ask, to take the cup away, and to do it with such vigor that his sweat became drops of blood. But then say, not my will, but your will be done, so that we could see that even the greatest the, the greatest prayer request ever from God to God submitted to the will of God and not to his desire. Mm -hmm. If Jesus submits to the will of God and not his desire to take the cup away, then we have to do the same thing. And Jesus understood what it meant because when they came and took him and Peter took out his sword and cut off Malchus's ear, Peter didn't forget his sword, right? Yeah. Wrong sword, but you know what I'm saying. But Jesus said, look, man, I can call legions of angels to my defense. So, again, it builds character, and it, it's going to do it in us. How do we balance just patiently waiting on the Lord and trying to rejoice in our sufferings versus trying to fight for others and ourselves and improve difficult circumstances that we feel like um, we have the skills and the calling to change. Okay, so a couple different layers there. So let me just go at the first thing that stood out to me about that. I don't know what calling means. I know a lot of people use that. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't, and I'm not mocking you for saying that. I just hear a lot of people talk like that. I don't know what that means. I mean, the Bible says, like, if someone is going, Galatians 6, if someone is going through something, you who are spiritual, restore them, you know? So we're, so I think the calling is, is just be a believer, be, you know, Romans 12, weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn, outdo one another in showing honor. Like, the calling is just to be, to, to be, really be a Christian um, in one sense, two people. So I think we're all equipped with that. Now, talk about skill, that's a good question because not all of us know how to skillfully to do that. So if I'm, if I'm understanding the, the all of what you're saying, you know, I don't think there is an easy balance like we want to have happen. I don't think there's an easy balance. And so I use this person I'm about to use all the time, but I'm to, to, to make the point. Like, there's no easy, I always use John the Baptist, never mind. I'm going to use Peter. So Peter is told in Luke 22, he said, he rebukes the Lord <laughs> Peter rebukes the Lord. What a sigh. I would love to see that scene. Peter rebukes the Lord and says, no, Lord, you're not going to die. And then Peter's told, yeah, get behind me, Satan. And he told Peter, Peter said, I'm willing to die for you, right? I'm willing to go to jail, die for you. He said, really, Peter? Well, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter was probably like, I ain't denying him. I'm here. I'm here. 
As soon as he got arrested, man, Peter was like watching from a distance. Aren't you with him? No, nah, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> then another girl said, man, ain't you one of his disciples? And he got offended. Man, what do you mean? I ain't with him. What are you talking about? The complexity of that. Here's Peter, in some senses, the strongest of the apostles. The only two, one of two that stayed, John was right there with him the whole time. Peter was from a distance, and then Peter runs away because he denies the Lord three times. The reality is it's complex. It's a complex thing to trust God and to suffer and to rejoice. I mean, these aren't the reason why Jesus came and did it because he was the only one that could do it perfectly, right? So there is no real easy way to like, oh, just do this and do this. Scripture is not like medicinal. We're like, take these two verses and call me in the morning. Like it doesn't, it doesn't change some things. A lot of what the endurance is, endurance is long suffering. It's being willing to trust God even though I'm suffering long. And some of that in the process, we learn. I didn't, I mean, when I did the, the people who took the biblical counseling, I gave them 17 years of counseling in a year and a half. And even then, there's stuff that you just are not going to get except from experience. And they, we always talk about, all right, when you guys, when the team is formed, then people, if people want to meet, they're like, oh, man, I'm going to so mess up and mess this up. And I said, listen, I gave you 17 years of experience. And within that, I messed up a ton of times counseling people. It's just, it's just, it's just how it works in life. Job's friends thought they were helping him. And God was angry at his friends because of the stuff they were saying. So again, there's no real easy way to do it. I think you have to always have two categories in your mind. One, that, I, that the Lord is sovereign and in control all the time, okay? And that he's doing what is best according to his will. Okay, that's two, then there's three things. And I want to glorify him in my response. We gotta keep those three things in mind. God's in control. He's doing what's best according to his sovereignty, and I want to honor him no matter what. And so that's how we think. So when we're going through depression or we're going through, sometimes we think, how do I get out of how I feel? Sometimes it's how do I glorify God even though I feel this way? And that's where Psalms like 88 and other Psalms 84, they help us. So I think a lot of these questions are excellent, but they're mutually exclusive from rejoicing and suffering when they're all just a part of one package. They're all a part of the same thing. It's just... But what the difference is, it's a decision. One is a decision, rejoice, which means I'm going to give God glory and even thank God in the midst of suffering that I'm going through. So for us, you know what that looks like practically? Here's what it looks like practically for us. It looks like I'm still going to read. I'm still going to pray. I'm still going to fight sin. I'm still going to go to church. I'm still going to go to D group. I'm still going to do the things that demonstrate my faith and not do them because I'm suffering or offended or whatever at God or whatever he's allowing to happen in my life. Those are the things that we do to show that we still are, that we're rejoicing in the Lord. Um, do you have any thoughts that you can share to encourage us um, in the area of standing with suffering believers? Again, so because suffering is such a spectrum you know, it's here and here. I mean, it can be anywhere. I, you know, here's the encouragement. Here's the encouragement. When we stand with people who are suffering, we are fulfilling the law of Christ. That's the, that's the, that's the real encouragement. Or oh, Matthew 7, 12. When you're doing that, 
You're doing what you would want people to do for you. Matthew 7, 12 says, whatever you wish others would do for you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So here's the encouragement from God himself. When you do that, you are fulfilling the law of Christ. You are fulfilling the Old Testament law by standing with people who are suffering. And I'd say the words you're going to hear when they really count from him, well done. Like that's what you're supposed to do as a believer. Don't be ashamed of that. Do the best you can at that. God sees that. God sees all of that. Matthew 25. Remember when God said this? When I was thirsty, you gave me something cold to drink. When I was alone, you visited me in prison. When I, and they were like, Lord, when did we do that? And he said, when you did that to the least of these, you did it unto me. That's the encouragement. It's like when you stand with people, when you weep with those who weep, and you mourn with those who mourn, and you stand with them, you are imitating the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is going to reward that, and he is pleased with that. And that doesn't mean everybody's going to like it. The, the way that I am, I, I, I try to stay balanced in the things that I do, and I get requests a lot. I just spoke last week to, uh, I did an interview that's going to go out to hundreds of pastors on biblical unity talking about staying balanced. And it was, they want to do a part two in two weeks. And so I'm always in these situations. In that context, in that thing last week, that panel last week, what helped me win people over was I was able to have a balanced perspective. I was saying, okay, I agree with that, but let me push back on this a little bit. I agree with you, Vody, but let me push back on that. And that, because trying to stay balanced is very difficult because you got to correct both sides. And you know what? You get enemies on both sides. And it's the same thing when you're trying to stand for the Lord. It's not going to always come with the honor of men, but it's going to come from the honor of God. Remember, men killed God. Jesus, the Father let it happen, but it was men who were greedy and selfish. The Pharisees, they were going to believe in him instead of us. That's what happens. And so when you stand for righteousness, fulfilling the law of Christ. You're fulfilling the law of the prophets. Well done. Continue. Continue, and when you don't know, do the best that you can. Pray, ask for pe ask perspective for people that you trust and know the Lord, and keep going, keep fighting. How do you uh, deal with the const with with the constant feeling of guilt and discouragement because you allow the cares and responsibilities of every day to take away time from you and the Lord? Um, this is. Uh, this is a, a, a new, busy mom that's asking. But I, I think just my own, I think when life is, when something new enters your life, you know, how do you maintain these things that she's feeling guilty about not being able to do as much? Um, so could you speak to new moms and people who might, you know. New circumstances. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah oh yeah. We, that happens often. I mean, there was a point we had three kids under four, three kids in diapers. It's like, geez, talking about playing zone. You know, so a couple things. The first is God has given you a season of life that he knows is going to challenge you. And I don't, I don't think God, God is demanding that everyone maintain the same level of vigor when they had more time. And one of the proofs is 1 Corinthians 7 is a proof. People who are single 
have more time than people who are married. This is, that's, that's basically what Paul was saying. I wish all of you were like me because then you would be solely devoted to the Lord. So there's an understanding, I think, of God that our time is limited. We're finite, right? We can only do but so much. So I think understand that the season that God has you in is two things. One, he's understanding of your weaknesses and your strength. That's Psalm 103, 10 through 12, right? For he does not, thank you, Tim, thank you, Beth. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. He remembers that we are only dust. God is, he understands who you are. He knows he gave you a child, a new season is difficult. So one, rest in the fact that God gave you this as a gift, but it's also, also two, also, he gave it to you because you could handle it and still find some way to trust him and honor him, right? So God doesn't give us children of different things so that we don't do anything and read and pray and we use them as excuses like having a kid and then not coming to church for seven months because you don't, you got to stay home with your family. And when the kid finally shows up, he's saying what's up and giving me and Mike Dapp and we just haven't met him. <laughs> so God isn't expecting us to do that. But I think God does want us to say, okay, what, what can we sacrifice for the Lord, right? And let me give you an example from the scriptures. In Luke 18, Jesus was with his disciples, and he was watching people give. And then all of a sudden, he keys in on this, this woman. I think she was an old woman. And she gave two bits, which would be like two pennies. And, and everyone else was just giving out. Of, and, and Jesus said to his disciples, she gave more than anyone else. And it wasn't that she gave more money, but she gave all that she had because she trusted the Lord. So with the little bit of time you have, give God all that you can. So if you only got 10 minutes to read, read for 10 minutes. If you only got five minutes to pray, pray for five minutes. Don't fall under the assumption. What I said earlier in the message, right? Pray without ceasing isn't pray for an hour. It doesn't, it doesn't mean nonstop praying. It just means, hey, listen. Pray with all the stuff that's going on in your life. That's what God is thinking. So what you have, that little bit, those little bits that you have, give whatever you have to God. He understands what you're going through. And that's why Jesus came, because Jesus could give God everything he wanted perfectly and fully for us so that when we don't, it doesn't count against us. So don't feel discouraged. I mean, there were times I just didn't have this perspective and I would be like, oh, man. There were times I sinned against my wife, man, because I just was thinking like, hey, we got to do this, this, and this. And it's like, nah, listen, God understands. Like, just give them the two bits that you have. What I think we tend to do is not do anything because we think we can't do as much as we used to do. So we think we ain't going to do nothing at all. That's not what God wants. If you only got 10 minutes, give them 10 minutes. If you only got one verse to read, read that one verse. Learn how to ask questions and meditate on that verse. That pleases the Lord. It's little things like that that we'd be surprised at, please. Thank you. Um, this person asks, is, is it sinful to stop asking God for good things? Um, they wonder if the Lord is saddened when we no longer ask him for um, things that we used to ask for, like, you know, for example, like having children or serving their family better. They would like your perspective on that. So is it sinful? So when we're talking about sin, right, the two ways that we measure sin are action and motives, right? So is it a sinful action to not ask for God for good things? Nope. So it's a motive question then. So if the motive is, 
I'm not asking for good things because I don't want to be told no and then get hurt. And then, so it's a way to kind of protect myself from suffering a hope deferred. That could be sinful because that means I want to control my suffering and be sovereign over it. And that's not what God, we just never can. Again, we, can't choo- we can choose to pick up our cross. We can't choose what kind of cross we pick up. So if it's that kind of motive, no. But if you just feel like, you know what, I've asked this a lot from God and um, I'm going to move on, then I don't think it's wrong to do that. But again, I don't know the motive. So you got verses like back to Luke 18, right? The parable of the persistent widow. So that's in the scripture to show like, listen, we keep asking God for stuff and he's just going to be like, all right, man, I'm, I'm going to give him tired. Oh, oh, paraphrasing, not that God's tired of us. I'm speaking in sort of hyperbole. But I'm tired of hearing this prayer, so I'm going to go ahead and answer it. It's kind of what Luke 18 was about. And again, God doesn't get tired of us. I'm using figurative speech. But, again, but this sense of, you know, no, I don't think it's wrong to not ask for particular things. I think is it, should we not ask for good things? I'd wonder, well, why wouldn't you ask for good things? And what's the motive for that? And that's, a, that's more of a motive question. But if it's, if it's like, oh, I'm not going to keep asking for this. I've been asking for it for a while. Maybe you're just like, all right, Lord, I, you know. Hey, I'm gonna move on. I don't ask. I don't keep asking for the same good stuff. Like I, I, I pray everyone. I don't pray the same thing every day. I don't pray that God please give my kids faith. Well, actually, I do pray that a lot. But I don't pray like, you know, there are things that you just don't pray for after a while. I, I don't pray for some of my unbelieving friends as much as I used to. And you just, you know, sometimes you forget about things. Other things become priority. There's a number of things. But is it sinful? No. But I think if you're not asking God for good things, and I had to work through that. Let me tell. You. I used to, I, I had this dumb rule that I can't ask God for like little, so when I was trying to get a PS5 for the boys, I, I was like, man, I, I, was, I don't pray for stuff like that. And I just thought, you know what, nah, man, I'm going to pray, this is dumb. So I just pray, I said, Lord, I, I just asked him, would you allow me to get this? I know that, you know, you don't have to answer this prayer, I'm fine if you don't, but I would love to bless the boys, and, and I had two people get to me and say, I can get you one. So I was like, man. So when, I, when we finally got it, I told the boys what happened so they could see it was God that answered that prayer. It wasn't your dad is such a good daddy found to join. It was no, this was the result of the church, son. This was God who did this. So anyway, I think, I think that, that's the kind of stuff that we try to use it for. We got to give Cleveland a mic or something, man. Cleveland over here dropping knowledge. <laughs> You're asking God for something. And, it's, and, you much, and you think it's too much. The next thing you do is you start giving to other people. The next thing you do is you start giving to other people. Mm-hmm. And, and I would say Cleveland definitely does that. Mm-hmm. I think he models that. Right. So I'm, I, I can say I, he models I, I that. Agree. I'm the recipient of him applying that. So right. definitely. Right. We have a few, a, a couple more questions. All right, let's get it. Um, he said Super Bowl is in six hours. It, it is. It is. <laughs> Now, this is our church. I ain't going nowhere for the rock. This is at a conference, though. I'd be like, hey, y'all ain't paying me enough up here. I want to, y'all been adding a 200 to that honorarium. Now, this is the rock. Uh, y'all can. Y'all can set it up and make sure y'all close the building, too. I will be in the conference tomorrow. Who's coming? They better be masked up, too. So you talked about, um, you talked about how we have access to God. Yes. Um, and he hears our prayers yes. even when we sin. Um, how do we process that when we consider uh, first, first Peter 3, 7, um, husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner 
showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered? So that's a specific thing that God's talking about. And he says, your prayers will not be hindered. There's a difference between God hearing my prayers and God not doing what I'm asking for my prayers, right? So in that passage, God is commanding husbands to treat their wives with an understanding way or the prayers that they're asking will be hindered, meaning God may not attend to some of those prayers. Why? Because the specific role of a husband is to, you know, love or wash her like with the word like Christ loves the church. That goes back to Ephesians 5, right? So when God says that, sure, there are moments when that can happen. But God is going out. Oh, water. Thank you. God is going after a specific thing, a specific person. You won't find anywhere else really where God is, is making that kind of proclamation that I'm aware of where he's saying your prayers will not be heard. The point is, man, you're, you're, not, you're doing something that's way outside of the call that I've given you as a husband, and that's important that you do that. Otherwise, I'm not going to entertain. So it's more of a warning that what it, what's, what it's set in place to do rather than a specific thing. Thank you, bro. I'm sorry. Y'all asking a lot of questions. I'm over here dry-mouthed up. And I'm looking at the camera. I don't know how my mouth looks. So I'm at the camera. Lips could be all like Dwight. Dwight who? Dwight around your lips. It could be like that, Cleve, so I want to make sure... So, yeah, I think, I think God means what he says there. I think he's, he's warning and encouraging husbands, exhorting husbands to do the, to do the work of, of honoring their wives, seeing their wives as, 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 a, as a weaker vessel, and that they're co-heirs of the grace of life with him. Otherwise, so in other words, domineering husbands are not going to have their prayers answered by God, right? That's a specific thing. But as a general rule, God hears the prayers of his people. And the way he attends to those prayers is going to be according to his will. All right. Um, we're coming, coming down the home stretch here. Um, you talked a little bit about identity and that this is about identity in Christ. Can you explain that a little more? So, so everything, so being a Christian, right, all the language that Paul has used up to this point is connected to our faith in Christ. So from 116 and 17, it's the power of God to save the gospel, Jesus, the message of Jesus Christ, and the righteous will live by faith, right? So he's trying, and by faith, he means faith in Jesus Christ. So the, the whole point of his argument, and you'll see it's continued to be fleshed out, is that this is about our identity, like who, what makes us right before God? That's an identity reality. Like my standing before God, whether I'm guilty or righteous, is about identity. So if my identity is I have a righteous standing before God, well, how does that happen? Right. And so for the for the Old Testament Jews, it was circumcision. It was keeping the Mosaic law. And for non-Jews or, or what they would call God fearing Greeks or whatever in the Bible, there was the same thing. You kind of converted to sort of a Judaism and you try to keep the law of God and some other things like that. So it's always identity. And by that, I mean, who do you belong to? Identity is always, I mean, you know, you use these services um, where you go back and look at your ancestry.com, right? You go back, it's always about identity. Everything about what we're talking about is identity. I was just thinking about this the other day, how much 
identity. We, we use terms like identity politics. Like now, like that's a new thing. Identity politics been happening since politics happened because it's always about all politics are derived from people's identity. The reason why the Democrats have a different rule of politics is because that's the identity of the Democrats. The reason why Republicans and everyone and, and, and the li uh, liber liberals, libertarians, is that what they are? Libertarians? Libertarian. Joe Jurgensen and them? That lotion. Joe Jurgensen sounds like lotion. I don't know who's going to vote for Joe Jurgensen when you sound like lotion. You got to change your last name, Joe. But listen, those are all, it's all about identity. So in the scriptures, it's always about who do you belong to? Who's your identity? So if, you're in, if it's in Christ, then you have the same faith as Abraham. So Abraham is your father, sort of analogically speaking, in the human flesh because he had the same faith. And we talked about that last sermon. We believe the way he did in, the, in the similar ways. It's always about identity and, and who do we belong to. And if you're a Christian, you belong to Christ. What we're fighting for often is maintaining that identity because we often don't feel like, right? Most of the identity that God calls us to, we don't feel like it. We don't feel like a Christian. We don't feel like a, especially if we sin. We may, on some level, have a good week or a good, couple, good string of a couple of days and feel like, man, we've been having victory over this. We ain't been struggling. We've been serving. We've been giving. We're feeling real good. We're applying all the five values of the church. Like, man, what's, you know, what's going on? What, where's everybody at? And then something happens, and then we feel like, oh, man, I don't even know what I, what I believe anymore. It's always a battle for identity. Satan is always after that. He's always after identity. I mean, as a matter of fact, let me say this one thing. The proof of this is look at Matthew 4. Look at Luke 4, Matthew 4, right? Every time Satan, almost all the temp, there's three temptations. Two of the three temptations, Satan says this. If you are the son of God, turn these stones to bread. If you are the son of God, why does he start there? Why does he go there? He always goes after identity. Genesis 3, what does he go after with Eve? Oh, you will be like God, knowing good and evil, right? But God already said he was like them. He said, look, let me make man in my own image. Male and female, he made them in his own image. Satan said you will be like God. He always goes after identity. The battle for the Christian life is always identity. Who do I belong to? Who do I believe? Who do I behave for? Always identity. And this last one, um is really a, it's a statement. It's from someone we don't know. Um, but I am wondering if you could say um, something to this person. I think we should follow up with the person. We don't have their name, but we do have their number. And I would ask that all of our members, if you could please pray for uh, this individual. Even though we know, don't know them, God does. But this situation, our hearts, I think, go, will go out to this person. So this person says, I feel like I've lost my faith almost entirely, mm. but I refuse to turn away from God entirely. I feel stuck and don't know where to go from here. I want my life to be for God's glory. So let me say just one thing to whoever that is, because you're obviously watching the sermon, and then we're going to pray for you. Here's the one thing. You haven't given up your faith because you refuse to let it go. And the fact that you said that is evidence of the spirit of God in you. And it's God not letting you go. And so take comfort in that. That like, listen, the, the flesh and the devil don't say stuff like, 
I've lost my faith, but I don't want. I forgot how they said it, but I don't want to turn away from God. Turn away from God. So the flesh is saying I lost my faith, but the spirit in you will not let you turn away from God. What's the next line? Um, they feel stuck and don't know where to go. The flesh that. feels stuck, but the spirit in you says what? The spirit in me says. What's the last part they say? I, I, I want my life to be for God's glory. I want my life to be for God's glory. That's the evidence of God's grace in your life. That's the battle. And so don't be ashamed of that. Remember in Mark 9, right? This is the last thing I'm going to say, and I always say that, and then this is the last thing I'm going to say. In Mark 9, uh, Jesus is at the, the, the top of the mountain, and the transfiguration happens. Then they come down. This is the thing beginning in verse 14. They come down to this crazy scene. It was Peter, James, and John with Jesus, and they saw Moses and Elijah, and they heard the Father speak. They come down the mountain. Them dudes are buzzing. They walk over to this commotion, and the disciples are there, and they can't cast a demon out of this boy. And the boy is flipping all over the place and foaming at the mouth. Mm -hmm. And so Jesus looks to the Father, and he says, you know, how long has this boy been like this? Mm -hmm. And he starts explaining to him. Mm -hmm. And Jesus says, you know, do you believe that I can do this? And he says uh, something like, yeah, you can. And Jesus said, I forgot how he said it, but he was like, what did he say back? You got it? He said, um, Lord, I believe. But help help my own belief, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Jesus was like, you, what do you mean you can? Anything, any, that, what, that, what, this is what the dude said. Mm -hmm. He said, I think, I think so. so. Paraphrasing. And Jesus was like, what? Anything is possible for one who believes. And so he said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's the, that's, the, that's the fight of the Christian. I believe, but there's some unbelief there too. I believe, but help my unbelief. So he believed Jesus could do it. I think he didn't have faith that he would do it because it's been going on for a long time. And let's be honest, the disciples that, you, that came from you couldn't do it. So maybe they can't do it and you can't do it. But the phrase, I believe, help my unbelief, it sounds like you. And honestly, if you were in our church today, if, you were, if we were here having church and you raised your hand and said that, you would be saying it around a bunch of people who at different times and maybe in the same moment would say the same thing. So don't be ashamed, but don't let the enemy trick you in thinking that your faith is flawless. It's not, but it's still there. And that's what the spirit of God is working in you. So we're going to pray for you. Please feel free to contact myself or Pastor Mike. Uh, Kurt at SolidRockChurch.net, Mike at SolidRockChurch.net. We'd love to talk with you, and if there's a way we can help you, we'd love to. Thank you for listening today, and we're gonna, Mike's going to pray for you now, and then we'll conclude our time. Lord, we thank you so much for the way your spirit moves. We celebrate the fact that you, you are unrestrainable and you are unstoppable. And we thank you that the, that, the way that you've moved upon our friend's heart is such, I would say our brother or sister's heart, is such that there, you say that um, if we have faith the size of a grain of a mustard seed, Lord, thank you that there is at least mustard seed faith that says, I want my life to glorify God. And so we pray that you would please let that grain of a seed grow and ignite them to fight the way they know how to fight.
because they are looking back to probably things they used to do that were more indicative of operating faith in their life. So, Father, thank you uh, that you are able because you have you have called this person to you. We thank you that you have equipped them to respond to your spirit as they have this morning, this afternoon. And so we pray that you would please ignite that, let that pilot light of faith that they are speaking from, let it begin to have its work. And I pray that we would be able to follow up and have a conversation with this person and help them, Lord, along the way, Lord, be um, a a real uh, community for them, Lord. I pray that you would, um, I also pray that you would allow them to see that even in their statements, that it is not them who is holding themselves, who has tethered themselves to you, but it's you who has tethered yourself to them. And that is why they want their life to glorify you. So, Father, I pray that you would bring that to pass. I pray that you would help us to participate. I pray that we would remember as a church um, to pray for this person. And I pray that we would have the opportunity to talk. And I pray that you would move by your spirit. But I pray that they would attribute all of that to you. And I pray that they would, one of the first things they do is thank you that you won't let them go. In Jesus' name I pray and I thank you. Amen. 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 Always a privilege to be with you, Rock. Love you very much. I uh, hope you watch the Super Bowl. Hopefully there's some good commercials. And uh, looking forward to seeing you guys for a little bit on Wednesday night. We got Wednesday night's one of the uh, D group, right? It's D group. Oh, this is, uh, is this, um, oh, no, this ain't the co-ed week, is it? I can't remember what week. No, this is second week. That's right. Yeah. It's regular joint. All right. See you guys when we see you. Pray that we get home safely. It's, it's a blizzard out there. See you guys next week.